Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. We're back in the saddle again. Took a week off, and now we're back. It's yeah. Good to, good to I, be back. I had to go for my other job. Right. Uh, we had to go to Austin for sales meetings. Oh. And uh, I've Your never, other job being? The, uh, older public title. There you go. I'm a marketer. Right. And so basically what I do is I just connect the dots from escrow officers. This is where you business people, man. You just start talking st- and you say stuff, and then later you realize it didn't mean anything. You know what I else it sounds the like? Dots. Therapists. <laughs> so, you know, ooh, how did that taste? Burn. Huh? Ooh. Burn. So anyways, I've never been to Austin, and there's slogan. So you went there to connect the dots? Yep. Their slogan is, keep Austin weird. Is it? Uh, like, people will describe Austin as, like, people that I knew in Utah that have been there before. Mm-hmm. Was It's, it's kind of like the Park City of Texas. Okay. You know what I mean? It, it's it, it's known for its music. It's known for its kind of they culture. They have the South by Southwest. There and that was just year, kicking off. Right? So we left on a Thursday. South by, no, city Austin City Limits. Oh, yeah, yeah. They have that too. Was yeah. kicking mm-hmm. off on Friday. And mm-hmm. Pink, the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And so the town was bustling. I'd go for that. That'd be fun. And it was cool. And there was a couple of things down there that I wanted to do. But before we get to that. These are these are some of the times that I I don't get nervous for my sobriety, mm-hmm. but I, I I get cautious. Does that make sense? Tell me more. Okay, so have you you've been on work meetings where they go out of town and it's like team building and do this? No, never had a job like that. So you do stuff I, like I that. I can imagine. Yeah, and and so basically the way the other people will sell it to you is we're going to be in meetings for eight hours, but then we're going to party. Say, okay, yeah, I can see that. You know, and Here. so, and that's the that's selling what people point. look forward to. They look forward yeah. to it. It's the network. So they have it in a cool city with lots of cool bars so you can, yeah. you know, party it afterwards. Yeah. And they have this thing which Utah doesn't know anything about, but happy hour. Happy hours are everywhere. Which I, you educated me on that not too long ago. I didn't realize they didn't have. Happy hour here because it's against the law. It's against the law to have a happy hour. Why, why do we live in a state where you? Keep, it's against the law to have happy hour? Well, I was talking to a lot of people about the alcohol rules me. while yeah. I was in Austin from you know other people in different com- you know different states that were right. in the same company. And, and for the longest time, you used to have a private membership to all the bars in Salt Lake in Utah, and they stopped right before the Olympics came. So if you wanted to go into a local bar. You had to buy a membership. Oh, okay. And then you could sponsor five people or, or something like that. But you so you have a wallet full of memberships. Like if you went to four or five different bars, you know, over the course of a month, so, you'd have to buy a membership. I didn't realize that. But they That's don't do weird. that anymore. Oh, so okay. they had happy hours, and, and it was kind of you know it was kind of cool. But it was it, I wasn't nervous for my sobriety. I was just cautious. 
Okay. Because I, you know, that's one of the things of the sales meeting. Well, what are you worried is going to happen? You're, you're out there, everybody. So did they hit it hard? Did they hit the city pretty hard? Most of, not throwing anybody under no, the bus, no, but I mean, like. No, not, didn't we hit it really hard, but yeah. they did go out. And every night after the meetings, you'd go back to your room, you'd shower, you'd meet at happy hour. Uh-huh. And part of that is the networking, is it's sitting there and talking sure. to people rather than being in office meetings or conference rooms, listening to a, pres- a presentation. It's more you, relaxed setting. You can make real connections with yeah, people. And, 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 and yeah. so you're talking to people and talking about you know what they do when they're out marketing and what are some of the tricks that they use and uh-huh. some of the things that they're coming across with the, the economy, what it is, and, and how they're combating that. And so a lot of the conferences during the day was about that type of information. But in the evening, you got a chance to talk to other marketers uh-huh. and, and pick their brains. Okay. And all of that usually happens starting at, at happy, happy hour. hour. Yeah, yeah. And so then after happy hour, you know, then they usually, well, let's go to get some dinner. Let's go into town. Let's go do something, you know, because sure. we've been in meetings all day. Let's cut loose. and Have and some fun. I wanted to cut loose and have some fun, but I was kind of somewhat worried that it was, was I going to be fun? Was I going to have Were fun? Were you worried they would sort of think of you less than, like you're not as much fun? or So everybody in the company knows uh, about my journey, about my road to recovery. And but the there are other companies there, right? But not they all networking. Know. People probably want to buy you drinks. And- yeah, and then people do that, and, and they try, and I go, no, I can't. And as a matter of fact, I always started out at these events like, hey, do you want me to buy a drink? No, I'm an alcoholic. And four or five people will laugh, and I'll go, no, nah, I'm serious. <laughs> you know, really am. It's like, if I drink now, then I won't make the plane on Thursday. Yeah. You know, and so, and then, but then they start to ask questions, and they get to know me, and we have fun. But I worry that I'm not going to be able to invited with them to go out and do fun stuff because they're worried about me. Oh, I think when people get together and drink, it's they sometimes feel like it's a little bit of a downer to have somebody with them that's sober. Yeah. But I went out and I went dancing and we went to a piano bar and we sang and we had a good time. And I kept to my plan. And my plan was when people started to get overserved or a little intoxicated, and, and it wasn't just the people that I work with, people at the bar, that's when I bounce out. Okay. You know what I mean? That's when I go like, so I was home by 10 o'clock every night. I was going to say, that probably got you home pretty early. Yeah, you know, because I just go, I, and, and part of it is because I just. Well, tell me why that's your plan, though. I don't have the patience for drunkenness. For the sloppy drunks? For the sloppy drunks. I don't have the patience when somebody's telling me a story about what I should do or something like that, and I know they're inebriated, to, to, to act like I care. Yeah. And, 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 they're, they're sharing their genius plan with you. Yeah, and, and, and I'm not like, to be oh, cold man. or callous, but nah, it's just yeah. like- We've it, all been there. It's just like, you're not going to remember this. I got to act like I care, and this I just none of this sounds plan. fun for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah, you right. know, so I want right. to come down here. I want to get to know you, and I want to have some fun. Yeah. Uh, but once the Jaeger comes out, I'm out. <laughs> for sure. You know, I'm once the like, Jaeger comes out, you definitely I'm need out, to go. You yeah. know, and so, but it was very fun for me. And the crazy thing is, is that during that time, I met at least a half a dozen people in the company, or would find out that I wasn't drinking after I told them that I was an alcoholic. That would sit down, and I would have genuine conversations with them because they had a family member or a loved one, uh-huh. or they were thinking about they drink too much. And so, it really was enlightening to. To own do you, it. Do you attract people to you when they find out you're sober that they want to discuss like that worry that they drink too much? Do you a get lot. that a lot? A yeah, lot. I bet you do. But on the other side, I get people who avoid me. Oh, yeah. Avoid me. Yep. 
that, that like we're at a party and that guy comes in who's like, oh, this guy's a lot of fun. You're going to love this guy. And then they go, and there's our friend Casey who's an alcoholic and in recovery. And they're like, so we don't ever really cross paths because he does whatever he can to stay away from me. Yeah, yeah. You know, but there is a lot of people and, and they would use the, the term that you use, pre-contemplation. Yeah. That would be like, hey, um, how did you do it? And I get this a lot. Is it really fun? Uh, are you are, yeah, are you yeah. are you really happy? I think people definitely worry that if they get sober and they don't have they don't have alcohol in their life anymore, life is going to be really boring. I, and I know that's one hundred percent true because I thought that. Yeah. I thought to myself, how am I going to have fun in this world right. without alcohol? Yeah, and 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 I that used to scare me, and now I go, what were you thinking? If if all your fun had to revolve around alcohol, were you really having fun? Right. Now, you were that sloppy guy telling people your plans. Yeah. <laughs> but my plans were good. I'm sure they were. My, my I'm, I'm sure work. they were genius. My plans were yeah. going to work. So, I, once again, I, I think a big key to my recovery has been the ownership. Just going, no, this is it. Well, so, I like that because, so, if I understand what you're saying, when somebody offers you a drink, you say, no. I, I'm not going to drink. I'm an alcoholic. Instead of just saying no, no, thank you, or being vague about it, is that right? You yeah. just kind of jump straight to the. I just jump right to it yeah. because then I don't have to. I saw this meme and says alcohol is the only drug you have to uh, explain to people why you're not using it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, it's like somebody yeah. was like, "Hey, do you want to drink?" And you're like, "No." And they go, "Why?" I mean, I, yeah. No should suffice, but you have to go. No, I can't. Or I'm, you, you got to go into some long story of why you're not drinking that night right when no should just be enough and so rather to save me the time i go i'm an alcoholic yeah and end the conversation right you there. know and, and and then if they want to have a conversation about why it is I, i'm the king of hey, google my name yeah. you see my my mugshot <laughs> yeah you know so what like about Nolte's little brother <laughs> you do really what about this what about uh this, so you're at this big conference lots of people from all over did anybody else? Did you meet anyone else that's uh, in recovery? Did anybody t- come up and say they're an alcoholic too? No, I, I you didn't. The, really? Oh, that's surprising. I mean, I met I met some people who didn't drink, but once again, I mean, there was I think there was over 150 of us there. Yeah. And so the people that I interact with, that circle was maybe 20 or 30. Yeah. But I mean, I got a lot of people who was like, "Wow, you're a lot of fun," and I was like, "Well, cool, thanks." With a little surprise in their voice, <laughs> there, right? Yeah. Because they assume that if you're not drinking you're not going to be any fun like i was out there dancing with people yeah. and i was singing at the bar and this one lady who's it was a, a a marketer here in salt lake she goes i just want to tell you how proud i am of you and i go why and she goes because you're genuinely having fun you're not faking this and i go no why why would i fake this if i'm not having fun i'm just gonna go home yeah you know you go home any any given time law and order's on and i like law and order well you there know? you go I'll, I'll go back and just watch that but i was genuinely having fun yeah and the cool thing about it was because i've been in conferences in the past when i was drinking and i guarantee i didn't learn anything <laughs> and you know what i mean and i was the I'm guy sure. i was the guy who slept through the alarm yeah who, fall asleep during presentations. Right. And I mean, I came home with a notebook full of notes. No, I'm sure you benefited. And, and, and it, and it, it Let's was cool. bring up something, though, because your personality, with or without alcohol, you're a fun guy. You're, you're outgoing. You like to have fun. The truth is there are people, uh, especially I work a lot with people who have anxiety, that they they are introverted and they are anxious. And so in those social settings, without alcohol, they it's more of a legitimate concern to them that they aren't going to be able to be, interact and have fun. So 
Uh, what advice would you give to those folks? Because there are people out there that have used alcohol most of their life to compensate for their social anxiety. I mean, I guess, and we learned this in the conference, and, and I think it applies to recovery as well, is stay in your lane, know your strengths and know your weaknesses. And so if, you're, if you are a more introverted person, uh, be cognizant of the situations you put yourself in mm-hmm. and be realistic with your expectations. You know, uh, yeah, you, you know, sounds like therapeutic acceptance of yeah. being, you know, accepting yourself for who you are and sort of, you know, playing to your strengths. Right. You know, I'd like to be taller and I'd like to be thinner, but this is who I am and I got to be OK with it. Right. And and, and and there's just some things that are out of my control. Yeah. That, you got that, the flow, though. I know. Behind the hat. But here, yeah. short story sidebar, if you will. Yeah. I was taking my son to the doctor for his annual checkup. Right. And they did his measurements and his weight and then they were going to do his height. And so they did his height. And uh, he goes, hey, Dad, why don't you jump on there? And I go, why? He goes, because you say you're 5'11", but I don't think you're 5'11". <laughs> so what was the verdict? 5'9 and a half. Yeah. yeah. But I'm rounding up to 5'10". Yeah. You know, My wait- football coach in high school used to add two inches to all of us, and I still go by that. Oh, yeah. yeah. You did that for the programs. Yeah. So, so, so the other the, team thought team, you were you bigger. bigger. Yeah. yeah. And that's where I got the 5'11". Yes. That's where I got it. Yeah, for football, right? But I still have the same weight as that program says, <laughs> and that's lying, too. Yeah, for sure. I'm with you on that. So I, I, I think it was, it, was, it was fun for me, and it was good to get out and, and, and still see if I got it, if you will. You yeah. know what I mean? To go out there and have a good time. Because so far, I've only played in my own backyard, and I feel pretty comfortable around here. Uh, right. And the other, other part about it is being who I am with being on TV and this podcast, I'm in the public eye quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So there's a safety net. If you will. Well, how so? What do you mean? Because um, that's what you do. Because that's what I do. Yeah. And, and and my brand is that I'm the guy in recovery. Right. You know what I mean? I oh, go, I see what you're I go yeah, out yeah. to Austin. Nobody, nobody knows Nobody knows. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so. So you had to sort of be yourself in yeah. a fresh new way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. And, and, and it was cool. And so. But you know, a lot of people who are in recovery might think, oh, I'm going to go to a place where people don't know me. Maybe I could get away with no, I think having I, a drink. I think people do that all the time. Right? That yeah. anonymity of being yeah. out of town. I think we've talked to a lot of people who uh, that kind of fueled their addiction and, and caused a lot of relapses because they had jobs where they traveled. Well, and they had, they lived dual lives. Right. So where they came home, they were prim and proper. They were hitting church on Sunday and they were doing that. Whenever they were on sales jobs in, in, in out-of-state they're partying. Markets, they yeah. were they were tearing it up, right? You know, and and so they lived these dual lives. Did you ever we, have that thought this weekend? Last no, week? no, no. Because, and I and I was talking to our guests, and I'll tell, we'll introduce them here in a second. Because in my life, and I've told you this before, there is nothing in a glass of alcohol that will make my life better. There's just there is nothing That's in there. That's good insight. And, and and for me to have one was never my jam and so why would i have one and i don't want to drink again and so to me i just it brings no value to my life and nothing but pain would come from it and i and i and i don't want that good for you man that's awesome well we got a great show for you today and we've got an old friend returning i i feel like he uh he's a record setter well he's a champion yeah he's got the most swears on a podcast yes the the most i think it's 32 josh had to work hard yeah and this is when he said right before we started recording hey can i swear on this podcast we said we prefer you not and he goes okay won't be a problem and then proceeded to swear set the record even more than brandon novak yes right yeah and he was in jackass and a skater i know this guy's 
who's is he a prophet or what was he your uncle um fa- the family is a uh, smith for heaven's sake last name is smith the family is uh intimately I'm glad you said for heaven's sake for heaven's sake the family is have is uh in the hierarchy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints history, yes. And uh, so I call Christian from time to time because he works at Wasatch Recovery. And I go, hey, I'm looking for a guest because you're close uh, to the recovery community and you hear amazing stories every day. And I said, hey, do you got anybody that would be great for the podcast? You threw out about three names and I told you what? Yeah, I've already had them. Yep, we've had them on the podcast. <clears throat> They've told their story. They were wonderful. And then you said, give me 10 minutes and I'll get you a guest. I said, cool. So we hung up the phone. He texted me back and said, I got a guest. And so I called him because I'm, I'm that kind of guy. I know. We've talked about this. Yeah. So I called yeah, him. I get, I get nervous texting you because I know I'm going to get a phone call back. Yeah, because I, I just I hate texting. Yeah. And so I called him and I go, Christian, who do you got for us? And you said what? I said, I got this uh, gal whose dad is uh, recovering from drugs and alcohol. Crack cocaine. I think I said specifically, the guy's an alcoholic, crack cocaine, recovering guy. And I said, do I know her dad? And I said, uh, yeah, it's me. So it's your daughter. <laughs> yeah. So spin the mic over. Her name is Sarah Archuleta. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? So we're going to hear your story about living with a crackhead alcoholic dad. Sure are. We can't wait. And we're going to find out what she does now, which is pretty cool. You're listening to Project Recovery. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another... Pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist, and our guest today is Sarah Archuleta, or we could just say Christian Smith's daughter. Uh, so where does the story of your dad's addiction and your life begin? Oh, uh, well, I was born into his addiction. Uh, the first time I saw him sober was when I was 16 and I turned 30 this year. So vast majority of my life was affected by his addiction. That's that's the vast majority of your sort of developmental years, right? All, All those years of you know, developing yourself were with a dad who struggled with addiction. What did that look like as a kid? Do you remember? Uh... Um, I mean, he was there physically, but wasn't there mentally. He coached my soccer. He coached my basketball games. I mean, he was there. It just was not what now I know as a normal dad. Every once in a while, we'll have people on the podcast, and and, and I think I was guilty of that with my kids as well, is uh, – is do we have happy dad or do we got grumpy dad? Mm-hmm. And so my kids would gauge their behavior on what kind of drunk I was that day, if you will. Uh, you know, it'd be like, dad's happy and so yeah. we're, we're going to do some fun stuff or, or dad's hung over and so yeah. we're going to let him sleep on the couch. I think it's also like you were saying, Sarah, that uh, 
it's it's are you present right like we've talked about that before even yeah. if you're happy yeah happy drunk dad uh are you really present are you really tuned in and i think kids like once you had a dad who was sober you could probably realize oh that's what it feels like yep. to really have a connection with my dad is that oh, does, yeah. does that 100%, resonate 100 percent. i mean he would have his eyes rolling into the back of his head as he was in the ki- kitchen cooking. And I would go over to a friend's house and be like, your dad doesn't do that. That's <laughs> weird. Right? There are a because lot you of only these- know what you know. Yeah. I was born into it from day one. From the day I was born, he was in active addiction. And a lot of it was my perception of normal. I didn't know any different. Can I ask you, did your siblings or your mom ever try to – rationalize it or explain it to you in terms that made sense to you? Not really. Um, My mom did the best she could to protect us from it. And in doing so, it was more of like the ignorance is bliss mentality. Um, A lot of the times when people would ask us where dad is, mom would say, oh, he's at uh, a business trip or he's not feeling well. He's at home laying down. Meanwhile, he's on a bender. He's in Wendover doing whatever he does out there for days on end. Um, there came a time probably closer to the end of the addiction, right, where it was like, okay, there is a problem here. But it never was like dad is an alcoholic and then he's an addict. It was dad's sick. So it did take us into his recovery part before we started gathering those aspects of it. Now, when you talked about going over to your friend's house and their dad's eyes weren't rolling in the back of their head. Yeah. And you said that's not normal. Yeah. When did it when did you realize that your family or your childhood was not normal? I didn't really. Like to be completely honest, I had a great childhood. Um my parents, I you know, people being a clinician in the field, everyone's like, "How did you not have trauma?" I really would say I did not have much trauma in my adolescence. Um Childhood was great. I was very active in uh, my cousin's lives. I had aunts and uncles that we were very intertwined with things. We would be weekend sleepovers at aunt and uncle's houses. I really wouldn't say that I didn't have a out of the normal childhood. I honestly was had I did not know any better. And when I would go to those friends' houses and I would kind of look at like they're that's that's weird. Like your dad's that's not that's weird. I'd never really vocalized it. I never said, what's your dad doing, right? I didn't want to bring that attention onto things because, A, it wasn't – we were talking about the latest boys we liked or we were talking about school or whatever. It wasn't the topic of conversation really. I was looking at you for something, but – I was just listening I, to this. I mean, because it, 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 it's fascinating. Yeah. Because you didn't know any different. I – growing up, so I remember – I'm – one of four, and I'm a middle child. So my two older brothers definitely were more affected in the aspect that they were older as he was getting more deep in the addiction, and I was kind of coming into the catalyst of more of it at the time. So growing up, I would, in elementary school, he would come and check me out of school to fake broken bones, and we would go down to the Instacare, and they would give him narcotics. They would give him. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. Yep. Uh, who? So your dad, <laughs> your dad would come and and check you out of school, mm-hmm. 
and you would fake broken bones so you could get narcotics. How do you fake broken bones? Um, I'm what they call fragile. Uh, I, in my lifetime, have broken a lot of bones. Really? Lots. Okay. Um, probably 12 or 13. Like, and r- Real? Real is bones. It, do, like, you have a, do you have a disorder? No. Like, like you, you don't drink milk? Like, I don't drink on? milk, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I, I wouldn't say I'm lactose intolerant, but I do not like dairy that, products. It, that actually yeah. is a myth, but- like, um, so, but you've, are you accident prone? Yes. Like, okay. I, my mom says that every year in grade school, I started the year and ended the year in casts. Wow. So okay. he would time it just right where either there, you could still see the hairline fracture on the x-rays. I mean, it was, they catered to him. He that was, a, he's a master manipulator. Yeah. Ah. 100%. And wow. I gotta ask you—you you thought that was normal? I thought it was him and I bonding. Yeah, it was dad time. It was <laughs> dad and I. I got checked out of school. The I'm one sorry, place he didn't want to be. I think that's so no, it's totally. Funny. It is. It is very comical now, right? There is yeah. a formula for uh, humor, right? When it comes to this, it's time plus crisis, and we've definitely had enough time, and we've uh, been through the crisis itself that we can look back and kind of find the humor in all of it. But yeah, I thought it was him and I bonding. I thought it was him and I getting our seat. You know, we had our secrets. This was something that kept us closer together because he is my best friend. Um, And throughout his addiction, he was still my best friend. Um, So, yeah. But the biggest thing is I would get back to school and then he would say, remember, don't tell mom. This is this is between you and I. And I was like, "Okay, cool. Like, yay. I get another secret with dad. So it felt like it felt like I mean. Let's be honest, it was bonding in a way. It's also kind of manipulative bonding, right? It's not necessarily healthy bonding and teaches you some pretty unhealthy things about close relationships. But for a little kid, anytime you get to spend one-on-one time with your dad, I I think we all probably cherish those memories. Yours just happened to be at uh, Instacare. I mean, every once in a while, I let my son, when he was seven, pound a Mountain Dew. You know what I mean? And I'd be like, hey, don't tell mom. And and, and that was kind of a bonding thing we did. Sure, sure. And and I mean, a lot worse, but that's kind of what was going on. And it continued. As I was getting older, I would go and babysit my aunts and uncles' kids, and it would get to the point where he would call me and say, I'm not feeling too well. Can you go to the medicine cabinet and read to me the medications? So I would. I would go over because it sounded legit, right? He's really good at playing the story. And I would, and I would read the prescriptions off to him. And if it was what he wanted, he'd be like, okay, I'll be there in just a few minutes. And I would walk them out to him, give them to him. And then again, hey, thanks. Remember, like, let's keep this between you and I. Okay, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes it got to a point where, it, like, he didn't even have to say let's keep it between you and I. I just started keeping it between him and I. Um, But at some point uh- – you had to wonder, this isn't right, or did you not? I really didn't. I really didn't because, again, I I truthfully did not know any better. And at what point did I tell my dad, like, no, right? That's as, you know, growing up, I just, that was disobedient. You don't tell him no. And it's your dad. He wouldn't yep. be putting you in harm or doing anything. No. Like let's be honest. Your dad, he's a charismatic, fun guy. Yeah. And do, do you feel like he was always that way when oh, you were yeah. a kid? Oh, yeah. He was, I mean, always. He was the guy that was the entertainer. He was the one that made everyone smile and laugh and always had that good affect and good time with everyone, even when he was high as a kite, 100%. Yeah. 
um, he was always that very outgoing person that would go and, you know, he would talk to a wall if it would talk back sober and in addiction, 100%. Yeah. Sarah, I'm going to stop you right there and yeah. I'm going to swing the mic over because uh, your dad's here listening. When you hear your daughter talk about this, what does that feel like for you? Um, we have had the opportunity to share our story quite a bit. And and I do believe in that uh, um, crisis plus times equals humor. So we, we're able to laugh a lot of it. But to your direct question, there's, you can see the emotions right now a little bit. Uh, it stings. That's not what I wanted to be. Um, and I didn't want her to go through those things. She didn't even mention uh, during that same time there was another thing that they still harbor against me, even 13 years into recovery. Um, oh, I was getting there. Okay, I'll yeah. let her get to there when she gets to that. But there's some sting there still. Um, I don't know, Dr. No, Matt, I, it, I feel I feel the sting too because we've got some time and some crisis in, in my story as well. But every once in a while, something will come up and it'll hit me different. What I, what I see going on here, Sarah, and you correct me if I'm wrong, sure. is that because you guys have been so open and honest, you've been through the process and you've had the time that there's forgiveness on your end. But I also see for dad, there'll probably always be an element of shame and regret. And I think that's a healthy thing. I think uh, shame, shame, it's borderline if that can ever be really very healthy. But when in moments you think about the fact that you're like, gosh, I wish I had never done whatever it is, and I'm sure we all have that experience, that can kind of motivate you to stay on a good path. But I, I think that you guys are close because of the process and the forgiveness, and to some degree because Dad really does regret that because I can tell that, like you said, he's your best friend. There's a lot of love between the two of you. Um, but but I can imagine that that'll probably always be kind of hard, right, Christian, to hear that? Yeah. It, I, I think that over the years the – the sting has dissipated a little bit, but it, I can't ignore it to your question because it's always – when we get talking about this, there's always a little tiny sting there. And But I think the sting is helpful in the sense that it reminds you of where you do not want to go anymore. And for me, you know what I mean? That sting is, is, is enough. The look in my child's eye is to know that I do not want to see that look again. So the sure. remembrance of that sting – is a great motivator and a reason why I continue to stay sober. I know you can't get sober for somebody else, but the fact that you stay sober for somebody is important. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Not only with her and her, her siblings, but now they all have children. And uh, and I, there are times when I can consciously recall those grandkids will never see their gramps loaded because that will never happen. I'm not going to put them through that. And, and I get to be in this place of honesty with those grandkids, not always in their favor. Like, that's stupid. What were you thinking when you did that sort of stuff? I never would have done that back in the day when I was when I was drinking and drugging. And it's, it's a good place. So, Sarah, you and your dad shared these little secrets. Yeah. And um, they definitely, I mean, they just continued. Uh, he always had this logic, and it was very skewed, um, but it was – that he wasn't hurting me or my sister or any of our siblings. He was simply inconveniencing us. And it came down to it when we would get an allowance. He would give us an allowance every week, put it in my wallet. 
I would go to the mall with girlfriends, go to open my wallet, and there would not be money in there. It would be a piece of paper that's an IOU. Those were as good as cash. Yep. They still are. They still didn't pay for my earrings, right? But those, I mean, and those are the things that he was referring to. We do still have those to the state. It's IOU, whatever, and we have them. Yeah. And those kept going on and on, and that became more of the embarrassment part. And this is probably now sixth, seventh grade-ish era um, where this kind of started picking things up, and that's where things started trickling for me. Because I still love him. I still, he's, I mean, I always have loved him. There were days that things were more difficult as he progressed and got deeper into the hole of addiction. But I I really don't think there was a time where I was like, no, I let, that's, that's not true. I did wish you dead, right? There was a time where I did wish him dead because you, I guess I'll back up a little bit. I've kind of like skipped ahead, but... So the IOUs came out and then you started going on longer benders to the point where I would be coming home from school and my mom would have filled black trash bags full of his stuff and then tell us to go pack a bag and we would go and stay at my grandmother's house um, for a few weekends on end. And then that, as we were kind of being bounced around, moving from grandparents to aunts and uncles' house, we had relatives living in the state of Washington and California, so we were going back and forth between all of this in the summer I don't really ever think we were home for a summer when he was in his addiction because my mom was still working full time, but there was this safety net of she didn't want us to be home alone knowing that he was out running and gunning. So on that note, the the evolution of addiction, at least my addiction, was it started out manageable, functioning, and over a period of time, I required more and the functionability decreased until I was, you couldn't count on me, I was... I was not physically a danger to, to them, but emotionally, uh, they, there was no emotional support. And the time you just described there a little bit was probably about the time I started um, start out with opiates, with pain pills, added alcohol on that, and gambling and pornography and all that. But the time you just spoke about where it was kind of dangerous was I had now been introduced and was loving the effects of crack cocaine. And that really took everything to a whole new ball game. Is that fair? Yeah. No, that's about it. Yeah. And so your mom, who was working full-time, managed to keep the home up and running, but she wanted to make sure you guys had a summer so she would cart you off to family members. Yep. So you could have a fun summer and maybe guise it in the way, hey, we're going to go here for the summer and you're going to do all kinds of cool stuff, hang with your cousins. Yep. Yeah. Do you you think your mom was worried about safety or the effects of your dad's behavior on you? 100%. Um, cause again, growing up, I never saw him physical, right? I never saw him hitting anyone, never saw that there was abuse of any kind. It was, there were these moments where if he, I did now see what I now know is withdrawals, right? Where he would go downstairs, he was isolating, he would have these spurts of anger come out. And so, yes, there was that moment where it's like, okay, mom's got to jump in and do something to protect us. So that was, you know, let's go sleep over at an aunt's house. Let's go sleep over at an uncle's house. And summers in Washington were fun. They were great. They were eventful. Summer in California was awesome and great. I mean, again, I had all of these experiences that any other adolescent would have when it came to those um, extracurricular activities and whatnot. Um, I don't, I mean. As you got older, though, let's, 
you know, is, I'm get, I'm gathering your personality here is pretty mm-hmm. pretty optimistic, pretty like positive. Yeah, a lot like her dad. <laughs> uh, but as you get to be an adolescent, you were mentioning like sixth, seventh, eighth grade. It really mm-hmm. started to ramp up. Um, going away for the summer sometimes ticks kids off that age because they want to be with their friends. They don't want to have to leave. They don't want to leave their room and and all of that. Was that your experience or were you just ready to go? No, um, my more experience at the time is my siblings are my best friends. My cousins are my best friends um, because we were all so enmeshed together. We're all about the same age. My sister is 18 months apart from me. I mean, yes, we felt like, you know, typical sisters and whatnot, but she then is my was my best friend and is my best friend now. And so going to these places, I was more excited. Like, yeah, I get to okay. go out of state for the summer. I get to go to the beach all summer, right? Or I get to go live on a farm all summer. It was kind of those distinct things that made but it you're, So your friends, your cousins and yeah. siblings went with you. Okay, yeah. I get it. Yeah. But as you stated, the benders became longer. Yeah, benders became longer um, to the, you know, I... I'm starting to now pick up on things uh, because dad is more erratic, like more away and his behaviors all over the place to the point where I called my mom one night and she's panting, running around um, because he's trying to break into the house and he was high as a kite and she was scared for her safety. We weren't there at the time. Again, we spent a lot of time with aunts and uncles. And again, we knew he was running and gunning, so she was trying to protect us by not having us home. And as that happened, you know, that was probably the first time that I realized, wow, this guy is an idiot. Like, I I really do not like him. And I think that was when my love started to turn for hate. Uh, It was very quick, but it wasn't in the way that I hate him. I started to hate my mom for keeping us away. Like, if we were with my dad, maybe my dad wouldn't be this way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. If we I, I really was despising my mom. I had a lot of negative feelings towards my mom, not towards him. I think that makes a lot of sense in an adolescent mind mm-hmm. because you have this bonded relationship with your dad, albeit it's it's a little bit, uh, yep. you know, <laughs> uh, dysfunctional, the bond. Yeah. But you probably did think like, hey, I'm special to my dad. If mm-hmm. I'm there, if the, if we're all there. Maybe that'll make a difference. I I could see that. Yeah. So he goes away and then my mom, you know, it still is hush-tush. We're not in this position of opening up to the world about what's going on inside of our house. It was kind of like the phrase for as far as people know, we're a nice, normal family, right? Mm. But do you think as far as people knew you were a nice, normal family? (laughs) Uh, No. We didn't hide it as well as we thought we could for sure. We never do. There were people that would come up to us and be like, especially at church, like, where's your dad today? And I'm like, oh, he's on a business trip. And they just got the smile on their face like, okay. The business trip was Davis County Jail. <laughs> <laughs> but we didn't know you were in jail, right? That was – At that beginning. Yeah, at the very beginning of his sentence, we did not know where he was. We were just told like he's gone. And how long was the sentence? 18 months. So – his, at, at some point, you got to realize this is not yeah. the world's longest business trip. Yep. So uh, he, his parents were serving, and my grandparents were serving an LDS mis- mission in Greece, and we went to the airport to welcome him home. And my aunt, his sister, said, "Well, have you seen your dad?" And I'm like, "No, I don't know where he's at. No one knows where he's at." And my mom's over there, like, "Like, shh, we're gonna go, we're gonna go do that." Um, so my mom was surprising us. 
I'm learning to see that my mom's idea of surprises are not a typical surprise. <laughs> but we were surprised, and we went to – he started out at Salt Lake County Jail. That was my first time ever going to the jail with Salt Lake County. And that long ramp, kind of walking up to it. And my sister and I really – we were young, had no idea what we were prepping ourselves for. And we walk in there, and it's a different demographic than we've ever been used to. And we just kind of were looking around. Okay, okay. Did you know why you were there, or is this part of the surprise? She is. We were driving. Said this is where Dad's at. Oh. So, but we, she didn't explain it's a jail. No. Nope, oh, okay. No, nope, not till we get there, and we started like putting everything together, and we're like, oh, okay, like Salt Lake County Jail. This is where we're at. Um, and I just will never forget it. Salt Lake County. You, it's like the you know you pick up the phone, talk to him type of thing or whatever through the glass and. I think you had your head shaved. You did not. It was not a good look for you, and you just had your elephant ears. But that was the first time that I had seen him, and it was just like all those happy, feel-good emotions came to the point where, like, then overcompensated from the hate to, oh, I miss you, I love you, I'm not mad at you anymore, like, I'm happy to see you. And we never missed a visit from that point, even when he got uh, transferred up to Davis County. And as, uh, you know, at this point, I'm, I think I'm seventh grade, uh, I have a favorite jail to visit. I liked Davis County over Salt Lake County. The guards were nicer to us because there were times well, where... We're pretty nice up in Davis County. Yeah. yeah. The guards weren't um, as mean, I feel like, as Salt Lake County. There were times where my sister and I, we didn't want to miss a visit with Dad, but my mom couldn't always take us. And my brothers, who are very angry with him, very resentful of him, we would beg them to have us, you know, to take us, and they would. And the guards were picking up on the family dynamic of these guys don't like him and these girls do. So they would kind of give us an opportunity to have that even though we were minors and we were supposed to be accompanied by a parent or guardian. So never missed a visit. And it was – I remember the day you got out, I you came to surprise me at school with my sister and you came and got us and we went to lunch and – Everyone's wondering, like, why I'm greeting my dad so big with hugs. Like, it's not like I didn't see him that morning because, again, I still wasn't in a position and our family wasn't in a position to say anything. Um, I mean, this was... When you say in a position, is well, it fair to... What, shame? Is this all yeah. shame? Yeah. Because addiction and all the mental health was very... It, you know, it is stigmatized, but that then it was more stigmatized than it is now, right? Because... You look at an addict, you don't see our family fitting that characteristics by then, right? And also, people didn't really understand – meant I didn't understand what addiction was. I was like, just stop, right? It's just stop. Um, but when he got back, he, he was present. He came back, and things were going really well, and then they weren't, right? Relapse. Yeah. Yes, and I can't. I don't remember the length between when you got out of jail and the relapse taking place. I feel like it was a slow relapse before it went to a full blown. My memory is it was less than forty five days. Yeah, when mom said ah, this ain't working again, get out. Yeah, because I think in those forty five days, I'm pretty sure didn't what didn't wasn't didn't Adam get married? Weren't you sober for the yeah, wedding? Yeah. 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 So oldest brother got married. All of these big changes were happening in the family. Then you. Uh, go on a bender, and this was the bender that my hate came back, right? And Is I, this when you stole your son's money for the car? No. No, that had happened. That's another story, but that had happened before. But yeah. it, I, I, do, I don't do well with cars. Continue on, Sarah. Yeah, this is where uh, my, get, my little story with the car comes in, right? 
Um, so 45 days, he came home, relapsed bad, was in and out of um, really like in and out of treatment centers. You were running and gunning at that time through treatment, right? Like you went to a treatment center that, you know, they swore too much there, so that didn't work for you, right? Yeah. They were holier than, than thou. The guy you. who holds the record for swearing on my podcast left a treatment center because they swore. It was God's treatment center, too. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Brian Heaton. Yeah. <laughs> you, so, again, I'm, I'm in this position where I, I now understand a little bit more of what's going on. Things have clicked a little bit more. I hate this guy for what he's doing to my mom. Um, my brother is now trying to step in and be a father figure, and that shift of that dynamic wasn't real re- reciprocated, right? I didn't respect him. He's not... He's my brother, not my dad. Yeah. He had to do a lot of the fatherly duties. I mean, we had a family dog that uh, he had to hold while the dog passed away because we didn't have the financial means to take care of the dog, and he was nowhere to be found. So this return missionary is sitting there having, you know, cursing every name in the book at him for making him be in this position to take care of this dog. And we wake up the next morning and the dog not be there. On, On that, it's interesting as we talked about this. These are stuff that that doesn't get. It's rare that it gets brought up in the recovery process. That those are things nobody ever thought about. I, whoever thought my son would be sitting holding a dying dog mm-hmm. and not feeling bad about the dog, but feeling angry that he's doing what a dad should be doing and is not because he's out running and gunner in jail. Right. We never talk about that stuff. Yeah. But I, that happens so often, mm-hmm. right? Where the parentification. Parent, yeah, yeah, the parentification yep. for sure. And uh, th- that resentment builds because dad or mom, whoever it is, they're not here. They should be doing their job, and I'm having to step in and do it. And like you said, the younger siblings were kind of resentful of the older brother who's trying to yeah. take. So, I mean, it was shifting the, the family dynamic, creating a lot of, um, I guess, unexpected uh, tension and chaos in the family. Yeah, it, it was, I mean, chaotic as it seemed, it, real, it was real. So uh, after school, my mom still was working, so she asked that we do an extracurricular activity after school. And we lived in walking distance of an elementary school. So I was in middle school at the time, ninth grade, and I got a job as a sweeper at the elementary school just across the way. So after I finished school, I would go and do my after-school job till about 5, and then mom would be home and we would start our after- or evening routine. Well, one day mom says, I'm going to come get you after work today, and we're going to, I have a surprise for you. Now, mind you, my mom's surprises, you know, they're not real cool <laughs> right. surprises. That's when you ended up in Salt Lake County Jail. Yeah. So this one, um, we end up going up the Little Cottonwood Canyon, and I'm thinking, well, there's no golf course this way. There's no mall this way. Where are we going? And we turn down this long driveway to a gated area, and it's, a tre- it's the treatment center that he's at. And I just turned to my mom and I was like, there's no way I'm going in there. And there were very much more choice words. I think this was the first time I like swore in front of your swore mom. Swore and used real profanity, if you will. And I was like, I'm not doing it. My sister's in the back seat bawling her eyes out. And my mom's, you know, putting on her emotional act, you know, come on, let's go do this. We're going to do this as a family. I don't know why I got out of the car, but I did. And walked down to this room where there was clients sitting on one side, family members sitting on the other side, and a couple, a process going on in the middle with a a clinician. We just go to the very back row, and I put my head down because I'm like, I don't want to be here. This is bull crap. 
And I look up just out of curiosity to see what's going on in front of me. And between the process, I see Christian with his smirk on his face, you know, the usual smirk he has. And I just smiled but put my head back down because then remember, I'm trying to stay mad at him. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to let this guy use his manipulation, this nice guy act to, to get back into the life. Well, the clinician finished up the process and said, Christian, are those your daughters back there? Let's get your daughters up here. And my sister starts crying again. And then he describes it as like a spring on a trampoline. Like I jumped out of my chair and ran up there. No, it was a cannonball coming out of a cannon. When when they got invited, her younger sister went, no, she sunk down and shrunk down in her chair. She wasn't having anything to do with it. This little yahoo, it was like a cannonball being fired out of a cannon. She was out of that chair. Let's oh, I'm on. Let's do this, whatever this is. So what was this? Um, it was the first time that I was asked how his addiction has affected me. Get the detail a little more. How did it look? Um, I let – it was okay, yeah, knee to knee, hand to hand, and he's just sitting there with a smirk on his face – and I, for the first time, relinquished all of the secrets he had asked me to keep. That was the first time my mom had heard about the pain medications, about being me, me being checked out of school. Um, Going through family members' medicine yep, cabinets. That was the first time it had all surfaced. And I think I spoke for like 20 minutes straight without you getting a word in there. And I began to see genuine tears roll down his face for the first time ever. So the smirk had turned to tears. Yep. And the therapist, you know, you know, Christian, like, you don't get to talk now. You don't get to talk now. And I remember distinctly before he actually was even allowed to respond back. Again, this fun-loving guy who puts on this front that I don't hurt anyone, that I'm this party guy. Um, therapist asked the clients that he's been in-house with with some time what do you think of Christian now hearing that this is the true story behind it? And they were all negative aspects to things. And it was finally we were painting this picture of this guy is not the guy you all thought he was. This is my dad, the addict, the alcoholic, the one that has hurt me time and time and time again. And I think that was the first time we actually got to begin the healing process. Yeah. Uh, I think the same thing. Yeah. Um because that's when the light bulb went on. I haven't been inconveniencing them. I've been hurting them. And and it was in that moment that I realized that's not what I want to do. It's not who I am. And it was to this moment the beginning of the healing. She got a chance to get it out honestly. I had a chance, an opportunity that I took to hear it for the first time and decided I didn't want to do that anymore and that was the beginning of our healing Mm -hmm. and including abby's and one by one yeah i definitely think out of the four of us i was the first to come around for the forgiveness process a bit quicker than others um after that family process we would go and do game nights with the clients we would always go up there and do games um i knew what church he would go to so when i he was in rehab when i had my first homecoming dance right and in Utah, and you go to church still, you wear your home, you wear the dress the next day to church, right? Oh, I didn't know that. That's a thing. That's yeah, a thing. That's a thing. Okay. Yeah, you wear your, your what you wore at a homecoming to the dance to church the next day to show it off, right? I'm pretty sure my daughter didn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I did. I went to the church that he went to, and I remember wearing my homecoming dress and, you know, being able to have that moment with him because he wasn't there that night that I was bit off to my first dance or whatever, right? So as things kind of went on, I did come around for the forgiveness. Did I leave my wallet out with money in it? Still, no. That was hidden somewhere. I made sure all of those valuable assets to me were, were you know, hidden um, because there were a lot of things that I would go to get and they wouldn't be there. I went, we got a scooter for Christmas one year in the later of his addiction that ended up being pawned, right? And then we couldn't ever get it back because we didn't know how long it had been pawned for and such of that. So we did, I started to come around. My sister started to come around. Um, my oldest brother was present, but wasn't really in this. I'm, I'm ready to forgive you limbo state, but he was there. But my second oldest brother was like, I don't want anything to do with this guy. He's a dirt bag, nothing. He's the he's the son whose money I stole that was intended to go to a car. Oh. Yeah. So and they lived under the same roof for a minute there. Um and then the pivotal moment for me, this was the point where it was like it was too good to be true. And it was when uh he asked me to borrow the keys to my car. And growing up, the deal was if I worked hard and I made money, my parents would match half of the money for the car so we could get a decent car. And I did that. Got myself a, like, 2000 Honda Civic. It was cute little first car. And he asked, can I borrow your car to go and get some things taken care of that's, you know, mom has asked me to do, which was to get his license reinstated and he had to go get some of the documentation to do that. Do you want to share at this point? No. Are you good? Anyways, he was given a check because my mom, you know, at this point, he is really messed with the funds of their accounts. So he was on an allowance himself. So my mom, you know, looked, did the research, found out exactly how much it was for him to get his license back, wrote him the check. He took the keys and he was gone for what? Four, four days, five days. I don't remember. No, 10 days. It was 10 days. Wow. This is coming to the end of the whole deal. But so I just got out of treatment. Kelly's got this expectation of, hey, you got to get a job. And to get a job, you know, you got to have a driver's license. And uh, I was driving without one. So I had the $40, go to the DMV. Um, They said, I don't need your 40 bucks, but I need you to go down to the courthouse and have them sign off some driving privilege deal that the legal system had. And I remember smiling. And at this point, I'm four or six days out Mm -hmm. of residential. Mm -hmm. And I smiled to the lady, but immediately when she said that, my stress just went straight to the top. Like, oh hell! The last time <laughs> I went to, uh, last time I went to court, you know, they kept me for a long, long time. And so I get in the car, and uh, the brain of monkeys and the committee of monkeys in my brain held a meeting. You got forty bucks. Your stress is pretty high. And so I just decided, rather than go to the courthouse, I would go get high, go buy some crack cocaine downtown, um, and then go to the courthouse. Well, as that has often not worked out very well, that turned into be 10 days. And um, how did you tell them how I funded it? Uh, with uh, selling my car. Whoa. He wrote the bill of sale on a napkin, um, and it was not anywhere near what I paid for that car. It was a couple hundred bucks, if that. And the way it was, I think we found out that it was recovered when – you know, we decided we would report the car stolen, one, because it wasn't in his name. It was in my in my mom's name. And it's been 10 days. And you hadn't heard from me. Nobody yeah. had heard from me. I was off the grid, just did a silly mm-hmm. crack house out in, in the 
North Salt Lake West Side. So they were worried a little bit, you know, where is he? What's going on? And then find the car. Go ahead. So we found the car and we got it back um, because, again, I worked hard for this car. I wasn't just going to give it away like it was, you know, what he did. Got the car back and then things started to take another turn because he's, you know, he was gone for 10 days. Um, We're back to this place of, okay, well, here we go again. Like, there is no hope. There is no change in this. Like, why do I keep doing this, like, repetitiveness with him? And then uh, that was the day that uh, his therapist reached out to him and, you know, said some words that made a difference for him. And then he never picked up then. He checked himself back into treatment, was there for another 30 days. And then that was the true beginning of him coming home and things rebuilding. And I did forgive him quickly again. Um, And I did give into that idea of like, we can have a trusting relationship I remember the first time I actually left the wallet out, I did one of these, like, grabbed it and quickly, like, looked through and made sure I have all my monies, my cards, everything was good there. Um, uh, Shortly after he got home, I had to have surgery on my hand, um, and that freaked me out because they were giving me... uh, Pain pills. Yeah. And it really freaked me out. I was was freaking out because I was home, and he was home. How is this going to work? And I, I think I was... 17, 17, yeah, 17 years old because I, I broke it in high school uh, playing golf. Uh, long story on that, right? But I had the surgery, came home, and my mom gave me one or two pills, and then I said I didn't need it anymore, and she hit it thinking, you know, there would be a time where you're going to need it again when you're in this recovery thing, and I didn't, but we I, we were hiding things from him, right? And I remember that... The surgery healed. Everything was fine. Great with it all. Um, And then I was back in the ER a few, you know, a year or two later with pleurisy. The lining of my lungs was inflamed and it was feeling as if someone was stabbing me. And I remember I'm calling him. I'm, you know, 18 years old, scared. This is my first adult experience, right? And I'm calling him like, I need some help here. I don't know what to do. I remember the ER doctor coming in and said, well, let me give you something for the pain. And I just said, no, I don't need anything for the pain. I'm I'm good. I don't want to do that. And I just remember him sitting on my bedside with tears in his eyes saying, it's okay. You can take it. If it hurts, take it. It's okay. And in my mind, like everything of those days, it always scares me because I don't want to go back down the road we went down. And since then, things have, you know, been a lot different. Um, trust definitely came into play years later in the fact that he's my best friend. I'll leave my wallet out. He has, he took the keys to my brand new car, my dream car I ever got. And I remember him saying, hey, I'm going to go around to the store. Can I take your car? And I was like, maybe. Where are you going? When will you be back? Okay, that's fine. And I remember when he got back, I went and looked around the car and make sure there are no dings or whatnot. And I mean, honestly, I, I trust him now, and we're, what, 12 years? 12, almost 13. Almost 13 years, and I trust him more than with anything. I've got two beautiful kids who I have needed his help in watching them, and he has dropped everything he's doing, and he comes right over. Um, I call I mean I am a substance use disorder counselor in this field because of him there's no doubt about it so that's what you do for a profession now correct yeah what did you want to do before <laughs> I wanted to be a politician 
I have no idea why. I think I was really, I mean, you asked my parents. I was the most difficult child. I always had a rebuttal. I was always playing lawyer. And he's showing us a tattoo. Yeah. A rebellion. A rebellion. Yeah. So when he had a few years of sobriety under his belt, I did go and get my first tattoo. And I remember calling him because he's still my best friend being like, hey, I'm going to get a tattoo. What do you think about it? And he shares that his thought process was if I say yes to her, I'm in trouble with her mom. If I say no to her, I'm in trouble with her. And one of his things is he likes to be liked by people. He doesn't like conflict. And so he didn't give me an answer. So I just went and did it. And it was like 4th of July. I was in a long sleeve shirt. I had my wrist bandaged up from it. And I reached across to get some potatoes or something. And he saw the bandage. Went and sat down, and he comes over, and you know. I remember that day, um, <laughs> and I said, "Hey, uh, did you get the tattoo?" Uh, and she, she, no, I didn't get the tattoo. <laughs> and so I said, "Okay, are you suicidal?" And she goes, "What are you talking about? Why well, say you got a bandage? You've been cutting. Are you suicidal?" And I remember she kind of looked left and looked right, and she said, "I got that tattoo." And at this point, you know, I, I'm past. Judging and shame way past. Plus, she's 18 plus. So I said, show it to me. And uh, she unwraps the bandage and she shows me. So that, can you see it? A little, a little anchor. The size of your thumb. Anchor. And I, I remember asking her, tell me about it. Didn't know while I'm asking her this that her brother, older brother, sneaks up behind us and is hearing this. I said, tell me, why the anchor? And uh, I remember she said, well, you know, Dad, I've had a tough life with, you know, with your stuff and her own personal stuff, a marriage that didn't work out. And, and she said, but there's always been an anchor in my life to keep me afloat. At that point, her, old, her, her, older, brother, her older brother comes in and goes, are you an idiot? Anchors don't float. They go right to the bottom. I remember going, dude, this ain't coming off. Let it go. Yeah. Let it go. But it has. It's changed. Yeah. No, I definitely, there's been times where there's, you know, I've had my share of stupidity moments. And I've called him because I didn't want to call anyone else. And I call him to bail me out of things. And he's been there. And, he, you know, we don't offer any judgment or shame in our family. Um, we also are very open and we talk about our feelings, right? We don't avoid. We, If someone walks in and they're pissed off, we'll address, well, why, what's going on, right? And people say now that our dynamic has shifted and that, you know, we are a healthy family. We are a very sarcastic family. We speak humor, um, and sometimes, you know, people are like, whoa, what's wrong with these people? And we're like, trust us, we're good here. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm a substance use disorder counselor because of him. Um, I wanted to be a politician, and then as he got deeper into his sobriety, and I started getting involved in the recovery community, playing sober softball. When he started his career in the recovery community, I remember going to work with him and being in on groups and hearing, you know, people's lives and everything that has gone through and what they've been through and hearing the changes they're here to make and all of those efforts that they're trying to do something to change their life. And I just looked at him and I was like, I want to I be a therapist. I want to be a, a Jason Webb because um, that was his therapist that really changed and flipped the script for us in our family. And I was like, I'm going to do it. And, you know, a lot of people go to college for a long time and we're still going there. But they're called doctors. Yeah. Typically. <laughs> Nowhere near there. But you're going to get your master's. 
I plan to get my master's. Uh, definitely, it's in the, it's in the picture. Uh, being a Sud C has given me an opportunity to really dabble in. Is this really what I want to put a lot of my investment and my time and my future into it? For those who don't know, what's a Sud C? Substance use disorder counselor. Yep, and it is one hundred percent. I love it. I have been in the working as a counselor for three years now. Um, I am very fortunate, and I've been waiting a long time to actually say I get to work with Christian. We work at Wasatch together, um, so it's actually really cool to be able to work with my dad and him be sober and be present. Um, I, you know, it's funny. We're so open now with our story um, that we, and we share it in light that people can hear it and know that there is hope. Right. Mm -hmm. We're not the perfect story. We're not the perfect storm. We also know that, you know, ours is maybe one of a few that actually works out. But if anything, we offer hope to people that don't have that hope that we can be that support person for you because we know we believe in second, second chances. We've given this guy a plethora of them. And, you know, we always talk about that process of trust is a risk, but it was a risk we were willing to take. And it took us getting to a position of doing so in doing that. Wow. This has probably been one of my most favorite podcasts. Oh, for sure. Oh, I, yeah. I just love their <laughs> dynamic. I love their interaction. I'm asking you a loaded question. You don't okay. have to answer it. Okay. Would you say your father's addiction has been a blessing or a curse to your family? 100% it's been a blessing. I don't wish addiction or alcoholism on anyone. I don't even wish it upon my worst enemy. However, for me and our family, it has been the greatest blessing we have ever done together. Um, There was a time where, honestly, when he was in the midst of the addiction, we didn't know where he was at. My brothers were very estranged from us. I had brothers move out and in and out. And I, for a time, did not think my family was ever going to be unified. I thought this is going to be what it is. I thought my parents were going to get divorced, right? And I really didn't know much about the divorce life other than I get two Christmases, right? Mm -hmm. But to my surprise, this worked out for us. And I would not change anything. I would not change the bonding that I claimed we had for anything. I wouldn't Um, because it has brought him and I closer than we've ever been. I We've learned about honesty. We've learned about, you know, being completely judgment-free. We've learned so much about service and giving to others and being a confidant to those that don't have it, right? And I think the biggest thing is, is, you know, I will just, I'll be, I think just the other day, actually, it was kind of funny. I was at the grocery store with my kids, just getting groceries, and I had someone that just kept looking at me like, what is, like, I know you, you know the look that you get when you, Mm -hmm. like, know each other? And so I just smiled and, like, waved, and they come over and they're like, I hate to say this, but are are you related to Christian? And I'm like, depends. You know, my typical response is depends on who's <laughs> does asking. Does he owe you money? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That is my response. Does he owe you money? If he does, I don't know the guy. She goes, no, I, I went to a treatment center he worked at. He saved my life. And we just kind of started talking, and I was just like, T- like, can I tell him I saw you? I mean, is, is this a, like, are you are you doing well? You look well. And she goes, he truly saved my life. There are so many times where I hear this guy who I thought was man I hated, and I I hear so many times how many times he has saved people's lives. And to me, that is like my hero. My hero right here is him. Because he's in this world, 
and still in this world because he has a huge heart. And he continues to give back to the community. And because of that, he is a reason why I'm here in, in the position I am a Sudsies because I see how much of a huge heart he has and how he continually gives back to this community by saving people's lives. Because this disease of addiction, it is truly life or death for a lot of people. And I, you know, this guy always answers his phone. And no matter who it is, what it is, and I will, you know, he'll excuse himself to the other room and I can just hear on the other side of the door how he is trying so hard to help them get to a place where he can go get them. I mean, there's times where he's gone and gotten people out of places that I'm like, oh, can you not do that? That, like, scares me. But it's him and his huge heart hoping to give people the opportunity that we have, which is to really instill there is hope, that you can have what we have, a family that loves on each other, that we we respect one another, that we are there for one another. You can have all of this if you continue to just open the door to what treatment is. I mean, there's really not much to say. <laughs> I mean, it's well, such there's a am- lot. I hope people are feeling it because I feel it. I mean, I started tearing up. Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's 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 your dad is a rock star in the recovery community, yeah. and, and I see big things for you. I mean, I really do. Uh, you guys are so authentic, so genuine, so lovable, so likable, and so honest. Uh, I, I think that's what the recovery community needs, and I'm lucky to call you both friends, and I think that's amazing. Thank you. Oh, I agree 100%. I am curious, though. Ooh. Sure. How's your relationship with your mom? Good question. I, this, you know, I, I, lately I've been getting that question a lot as we continue to share our story. Um, the question that most often gets asked is, does it hurt my mom's feelings when I call him my best friend? Even though we've been through all of this and she's done all this to reconvene the family. Well, let's be clear. During this podcast, you've you, you've named at least a dozen people that you've called your best friend. So I'm real confused about the best friend thing. I have a large circle of trust that includes best friends. Yes. So my mom and my relationship, she is, you know, again, this dynamic of what we went through with his addiction has opened our eyes to be more open with each other. Um, My mom, I call, I think I talk to my parents an unhealthy amount. (laughs) I talk to them. My kids FaceTime Christian every morning. If Christian's not answering, we're FaceTiming grandma. We're always FaceTiming grandma when the kids wake up from from their naps. We are constantly in communication. Um, on the weekends, I if he's golfing, I'll call my mom and say, "Let's go, let's go do something. Let's go take the kids to the park, or let's go get lunch." So I, my mom and mine's relationship is again, I would consider her my best friend. She was there for the birth of my kids. She's always there for me. Um, she shows me honestly what hard work is. She, I truly believe, has demonstrated forgiveness. Because she talks about how she was ready to serve this guy divorce papers in jail. She was ready to call it quits and, you know, because she will say if it comes down to it, she will always choose the kids over him in any given moment if it came down to, to that, you know, potential thing that could ruin it all for her. And I think for her showing that she wasn't ready to give up this marriage, that there is still something worth fighting for and the way she forgave him. Um, and keep funding treatment right after time and time again and kept going. You know, her family was saying, just leave him. We'll take care of you. We're done. We're here. We need to get help for you and the kids. Let's just leave him behind. And she really just demonstrated truly what forgiveness is to me. So she honestly, I idolize that woman 
for staying together with this man. Um, he briefly talked that I have been married twice. I'm on my second marriage. I called my first one a trial marriage. Um, but I stuck around in a marriage I should not have been in for a long time because of a lot of negative self-talk that was, well, my mom stayed married to an addict. I can stay married to this guy. And it wasn't until I went to my mom and that I shared, like, that was my logic. And she broke down, like, I feel like I failed as a mom. And I'm like, no, you didn't. Like, if anything, you taught me to be able to forgive myself for having those thoughts that I can get out of this marriage and now find true happiness. So my mom is an idol to me in that that woman is a great example to me of what forgiveness is and how to demonstrate that. Yeah. Well, what a family, huh, Casey? Like, I want to go to their house on Thanksgiving. I bet that's a, <laughs> right? that is quite the good time. Yeah. Oh, I'm so grateful for you guys stopping by. And I think this podcast is going to help a lot of people. And I think you said it best is what you're giving is people hope. And hope is it's a game changer and letting people know that recovery is possible. And unfortunately, it doesn't work out for everybody. Mm-hmm. But, but it is life and death. And I'm glad you brought that up, Sarah, because sometimes we, we you know, uh, I think we forget how serious the disease of addiction is. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up and highlighted that because people do need to take it seriously. And not giving up on each other can you know, win the day and, and life can be the result. So I, I think you, your family's a wonderful example of that. And a big thanks to Wasatch Recovery for letting you guys both off work and coming out here and sharing your story. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what, Dr. Matt? It's a KSL podcast, Casey. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.